Thanks, Sam. Good evening, everybody. Great to be with you. Great to be back. If you're visiting, um, you might not know this, but I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm a senior minister here at the moment, but I'm also away a fair bit uh, doing a role for our denomination. We're a grouping of 2,000 churches, and we tra- we're traveling around at the moment, particularly this month. If you're here regularly, then um, you'll think that I'm just, I've missed a, a, couple, a week or two. I'm, I'm here every other week, but if you're here in the week or you're part of our staff team, you know that it's been much less than that this month. This has been a particularly... I'm going to keep talking, Isaac, before I do the reading, because it's really echoey, if you can do anything with that. Um, it's been um, a particularly busy month. Of the groupings of churches and the associations that we have... Um, there are 2,000, there are th- they break into 13 uh, different areas or groups, and 12 of them have their ministers' conference, like now, in February. I don't know why they do that, but they do. We didn't get to all of them this year. We went to some last year, we'll go to some next year. Um, but we did four of them this year, which means if there are 2,000 churches, uh, we, we, Sue and I, we've, we've spoken to maybe four or 500 different Baptist leaders um, this month. So, so thank you for your prayers and, and for your support in that, driving through all the different storms to get there. We, pre- we appreciate that. Storm Dennis. We're going through Storm Dennis. And, and it was nearly Storm Ellen, wasn't it? It was just like so close to being Storm Ellen. It was like within an hour, if you don't know that. So it was, it's like we get to name a storm if it appears in Britain or Ireland or Holland, I think, is that area. We get to name a storm. If you want to make notes, Joe, on the geography of this. So we get to name a storm. And then it appeared like an hour before in Spain. So it was like Jorge instead. But, but, but Ellen is to come. They're still going to reserve Ellen for the next storm. Yeah, yeah, it will. The next storm here will be Storm Ellen. So that was great. And some of the, some of the uh, conferences have been in Christian conference centres and some in hotels. So we were with the London Baptist Association, then the Southern Counties, which is just a bit west of us, anything Emsworth and west up to Oxford, and then West of England Baptist Association, and then the South of England Baptist Association. The ones in hotels were interesting because if you were in the Southern Counties Baptist Association, it's in a hotel, and there are three things going on in the hotel um, all at once. Um, there was um, us, Southern Counties Baptist Association, and then a, the, what's the clothes manufacturer, Sue? So there's Super Dry, they've got their conference which is like the easiest spot the difference competition in the world ever. <laughs> Baptist minister or super dry clothes manufacturer. And then the DIY SOS team are in the hotel as well. <laughs> so they're doing some work in a neighbouring hotel, which means that it was brilliant because Nick Knowles couldn't get to the bar for Baptist ministers. It was just, <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. And then we were in the Weber Conference, West of England Baptist Association, and another hotel, if you know North Devon, on Saunton Sands, just looking over the beach where people surf there on Saunton Sands. And they're filming um, a war film on the beach. So a film called Operation Mincemeat, which some of you might have read the book of Operation Mincemeat. It's got Colin Firth in it. And it's, about, it's a true story of uh, the, the British allies sending a dead body into the beaches of Sicily with fake documents to look like we were going to do a landing there, but actually we didn't. We did a landing in Normandy and, and all of that, and, um, which meant that during some of the talks, not my talk, but some of the talks, there's like smoke going off out of the window, bomb, bombs going off and all of that. So I was glad that wasn't my talk. If you were praying for attention spans for people, I benefited from that, and the person doing the BMS talk didn't. But nevertheless... 
it was great to be part of all of that and a real privilege, privilege as well. We were also with churches, a little grouping of, of churches in and around Cambridge and that area and churches in and around um, South Bucks, um, Sophie Hawker's church and churches around uh, that area as well. So great to be back uh, playing a home match this evening. So looking at Esther then, Esther 6, page number, anyone? I say anyone, but we, we mean Luis. So thank you, 505, 505. <clears throat> and I always find this first line funny, by the way. I've misunderstood it and thought it was our book of Chronicles, but even now I still find it funny. That night the king couldn't sleep, so he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought to him, brought into him and read to him. Even that I still find funny. Like, you can't sleep and you order the record of your own history to be read. How boring must your own history be (laughs) that that's the thing that's going to help you sleep? It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway and who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for, for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he'd set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honour. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the rope and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. When Louise finished last week, if you were here last week, she said, tune in next week to see what happens. And so we have this king who is sleepless. If this was a film, it probably wouldn't be called this. But it is a sleepless in Susa type moment. What is going on here? It is a whole range of different things. Quick recap, if you're just joining the story this evening. This is a book where God works but isn't thanked for it. He isn't mentioned at all in it. Where 
power seems to be in one place, like the authorities, it's all about the king this chapter, but really it isn't. It's really with God. Where God uses circumstances for good, where the call that we heard a couple of weeks ago for such a time as this is heard by Esther and bravely, at risk of her own personal life, she's going to go for something and she's going to stop a planned genocide. Spoiler alert, but that's what's to come. And then Haman, who is against God's people, has this particular vendetta against Mordecai, who is the parent figure to to Esther, even though he's an older cousin. And it all starts to unravel for him. It's beginning to already in our chapter. So in our chapter, Esther is already convinced that she's got to do her part and speak to the king about this planned genocide and how it's unfair. But she doesn't blurt out her words. She's going to choose her moment. She's going to choose her settings. She's going to choose her words. And she's going to get people to pray and fast. And she's in the middle of of that too. There's a delay. And God is in the delay. What we have really, I think, is what you could call moving day. Now, moving day is interesting to me because it's a golf illustration I haven't used here. But moving day is a golfing term as well as a term for moving house, but it comes from the idea of moving house. Golf is a tournament that is played not really like most other sports in that most other sports are played either in a league format, you play everybody, and everybody just, you add up your points, see how you do, or like a knockout tournament, you play against one person, and if you win, you go through. You do get that in golf, you get match play tournaments, but that's pretty rare. Mostly what happens in golf is that everybody is playing against everybody else, but you don't necessarily see how everybody else is doing. You just work to your own score. Um, The only other thing I can think of like that, it would be like downhill skiing. You're all, you're all taking place at once, and like the lowest score wins. So those two adrenaline sports, downhill skiing and golf, have that, have that in common. And in golf, it happens on a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday... No, sorry. Yeah, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's the typical format that a golfing tournament takes place. So you have about 150 people take place on the Thursday in an order that the organisers set. So they've got some famous people at the beginning and some famous people at the end for the, for the TV and they go out in groups. And really, you're, you're just trying to get your lowest score, the lowest number of hits that you take to go around. You do that again on the Friday in an opposite timing to how you started on the Thursday. So if you go out in the morning, you go out in the afternoon on the Friday in order to be fair. At the end of the Friday, somebody is leading. They've got the least number of scores, the least number of hits strokes. And what they then do is count back so that they're going to eliminate half of the field. So they say, say there's 150, they say, well, what's the score that would leave about 75 in the game? And then they do what's called the cut. And everybody who's got more than that score, they go home. Uh, They get on their planes or their environmentally chosen transport to go home, leaving about 75 left in the game. And what they do is, you then go out in the order of your score. So the people with the highest score go out early in the morning, and the people who are closest to winning go out in the afternoon with the lowest score, so that it looks right for TV, just as coming towards the end of the day, the people most likely to win are right near the end of the, of the game, you see. And that takes place on the Saturday and on the Sunday. So on the Sunday, whoever ends with the lowest score, they win. On the Friday, whoever has the 75 highest scores, or there or thereabouts, they lose. On the Saturday, then, you can't win or lose, 
but it's often called moving day. Because what matters is to get yourself near to the positions that are likely to win. The last few groups going out, the groups with the lowest scores. Whatever you can do to help yourself to get in that position helps you to be in the right place. In this story, today is moving day. You can't win. That's not, this isn't the day that Esther brings the rescue plan and the rescue happens. And Esther's already decided that she's in the game. So she's not lost because she could have ruled herself in or out in the previous chapters, but she's decided she's in. But God arranges circumstances in such a way... So it's God doing the moving, arranging the circumstances in such a way that things can happen for good, and they will do in the chapters to follow, as we will see. Just consider the circumstances. The king has this lack of sleep. He asks for a book to be read. Among all the pages that happen to be read, they pick this page, and Haman just happens to arrive, and he happens to have enough selfish ambition to want to create this celebration that he doesn't know isn't for him. And then he has no time to correct anything, and then the banquet happens, and he's called in to the banquet. Think about it. Of all of the texts that he could have asked to be read to him by the librarian, from the records of his own reign, 12 years by, by then, he picks the bit that includes, however long it took to him to try to get to sleep, he picks, picks the bit that includes something that happened five years ago when Mordecai happened to hear um, to do with a, a plot to overthrow the king. It's amazing, I think, that of all the bits chosen, the account of Mordecai uncovering the assassination plot is mentioned, and it's that bit that, that he chooses. So, so my question is, that I'm asking is, do we accept this level of detail in our lives, that God can arrange circumstances in such a way that they help move things into place. For many of us today might be moving day in the sense that it isn't the day we, something majorly significant happens, but it isn't the day we lose or win, but it's the day we're dependent on God arranging things in such a way. Uh, he uses circumstances for good, and sometimes we get glimpses of that. I'll give you two examples of that, because this is one of the themes of Esther. So actually, when I was talking about Esther chapter 2, earlier on in the series, I was saying something along these lines about God using circumstances. And John Sands told me a story about his daughter, which with his permission, I have uh, permission to give you the, the gist of, to tell his daughter, Jessica, who's in the States, who some of us know, and, and has been here with her husband and family. Um, she describes it, um, John describes it this way. One morning, my daughter Jessica Tyrone dropped her girls at school and then she found herself pulling into the parking area of a very large and always busy supermarket called Publix, with, a, with an X. This wasn't planned, as they normally have home weekly shopping delivery. On entering the crowded store, Jessica found herself walking through one of the very long aisles which is normally busy, but incredibly had only one other lady, one other woman, in that aisle, and no staff present. As Jessica drew level with the other woman, who we now then later found out was called Jean, Jean burst into tears. So Jessica put an arm around her and said, can I pray for you? And Jean replied, please do. My nephew has taken his own life this morning. 
So Jessica prayed for Jean and comforted her. And as they walked through the deserted aisle, they, they prayed, still nobody there. But as they left, other shoppers started to enter that aisle. It was just that moment when they were alone. As Jessica and Jean spent time together, uh, Jean said to Jessica, you're English, aren't you? And Jessica said, yeah, I'm from Sussex, from this road, pretty much, as well, from West Sussex. And Jean replied, well, uh, I'm from Essex. So the conversation continued, and they said, well, where do you now live? And Jessica to Jean said, on the Ridge community in Wiregrass, to which Jean replied, so do I. It turns out they live two streets apart from each other. Jessica had a strong feeling that she needed friends around her as her family were in various parts of America. Jessica now has no doubt that God placed her in that situation on that morning. And they're now very firm friends. And Jessica and Drew, Jessica's husband, are hoping that Gina and her husband Larry will join them and join their home group. What you see there is factual proof, she says, put it to you as well, that God will arrange things for good. If God wants something to happen, he will put you there if we're willing to be open to him being used. She wasn't planning to go to that supermarket. She doesn't normally plan to go there. And yet God used her on that day. I was thinking about this in relation to an uncle I have in, had in Sri Lanka. He's passed away now. And if you can read the dates on this screen with lots of paperwork, it, the dates are earlier than this. I just wanted to give you an impression of a room full of files. My uncle Raj, he was the real deal in terms of faith. Um, I just was always impressed with his faith. Even I remember going as a six-year-old the first time to Sri Lanka, and he was the one who was prayerful. You know, you get arrive after the plane, after the cars, after whatever transport to get to the house, and he just wants to sit and pray and give thanks that we've made this journey. A sweet man, but a man full of faith. When he retired, he was the income earner for my whole family in Sri Lanka. And so two things were important to him. One was to get another part-time job, uh, and he wanted to get a job as a teacher. He'd been a probation officer, though he'd done a bit of teaching. And the other was to get his pension sorted out. Now, that might sound straightforward to get a pension sorted out, but it's not in Sri Lanka and not in large parts of, um, of the majority world, particularly then. This is before computers. All the documents uh, are like this. And on top of which, there's a bribery system to get it kind of speeded up. Uh, and so if you're not prepared to do the bribery thing, which he wasn't, He's in a difficult position, and yet he needs this income for the sake of his family. So he does two things. He applies to be a teacher in St. Thomas's Prep School, which is in the capital, in Colombo, and he prays about it, and he prays about the pension thing too. So what happens is they are going to move house. They've saved enough money to buy a house or buy and build a house, and they were renting a house in another village, a suburb of, of the capital. And they have to move out, and the landlord's not ready for them, so they move out and they move to this house. And they haven't heard anything about the job, so they give up on it. Some time later, the landlord says he's ready. So my uncle goes, he's still been praying about all of this, he goes back to the house to do the kind of review of the house with the landlord. On the day he walks into the house, there is a letter that the postman has posted under the door for my uncle, inviting him to an interview for this school that day. So if he'd gone another day, he would have missed it. And he reads the letter and he does the inspection with the house. It's in the afternoon. He goes to that school. He gets the job. 
and that was the source of income for the next 10 years until my cousin has then fully qualified as an accountant and um, is able to earn enough for the rest of our family. He then goes to the pension office, which is a place related to where he used to work, the Probation and Child Care Department to Pension Department. And it's a room stacked, will, stacked full of everybody's files. The pension department accumulated all the different government departments' files. And they just took as long as they wanted to take, unless you were prepared to, to take a bribe, for all of these pension forms around a large room. <clears throat> My uncle goes there, having prayed about it. And the man he speaks to says, look, you can see this room. To find your document would be ridiculous among all of these documents. As he's talking and illustrating the point to him, he picks up one document randomly to illustrate it to him, and it is my uncle's form. And he processes his form there and then, and it took him three months to get his pension instead of years to get his pension. Our God can use circumstances, arrange circumstances in such a way that he wins. What's going on in this chapter? Let's just consider it for a moment. I know I've said some of them, but it's, it's astonishing. A king can't sleep. On the night that he can't sleep, Haman is planning Mordecai's death. The king asks for the history of his own reign and the king's reigns to be read to him. When there are many other things he could have asked for, of all of the books that could be chosen, the one talking about Mordecai is the one read. The king notices that Mordecai is not honoured. Just as all of that is happening, and he's wondering how he can honour Mordecai, Haman enters the court at exactly that moment. The king then asks Haman how to honour Mordecai without naming Mordecai. If he'd named Mordecai, none of this would have happened. All of that comes together, and God uses all of those circumstances. When we pray very often here for people's front line, for the place in your week where you're spending most time with people who aren't yet believers, for your workplaces, if that's your frontline place, we often pray a prayer that God has gone ahead of you. I find myself praying that very often, that he has gone ahead. This is what happens in this chapter. He's gone ahead. He's arranged the circumstances. It reminds me of the story of Joseph and a particular phrase Joseph uses. In Genesis, God is explicitly mentioned. In Esther, he isn't, but it's the same thing. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We do our prayerful and careful best, and God acts over and above and goes before us. Just as God isn't mentioned in Esther, prayer isn't mentioned in Esther, but just as God is there, like when he says, somebody who is Jewish is there, and you know that that means somebody who's following God and God is working is there in the last bit of our chapter. When it says fasting, you know from a Jewish understanding of fasting or a Christian understanding of fasting, they're going to be praying as well. So they're praying and God acts, and God goes ahead for them. In Romans, when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's like one of those circumstances for me. If it just said who can be against us, we'd have a pretty good list of who could be against us. 
Any number of people could be against us. We can be against ourselves sometimes with our own sin. Our sickness, our health, death can be against us. The devil can be against us. But Paul's question is, if God, who knows you, who foreknew you, who called you, who justified you, who forgave you, who has a plan for you, is for you, who can be against you? Our enemies may still set themselves against us, but they won't ultimately prevail in terms of God's ultimate plan if he's the one who's for us. I need a bit of that. I need a bit of doing my prayerful, careful best and then God doing the moving day thing, moving things in such a way. So I want to end asking you if you need that. Do you need any of the assurances that are here in a moving day chapter? Let me list some of them for us. For me, you could say this. When all seems lost, it isn't. Think of Esther. Think of Mordecai. Think of the way it looks to them at a particular time with a plan to end all things for their people. Think of Joseph. Think of my uncle. When all seems lost, it isn't. When no one seems to notice, God does. He is there, observing. He has our back. When other things seem great, they're not. So it seems like Xerxes and his reign is great. It seems like Haman has all the power. It seems like they're the people who are great, but they're not. When nothing seems just, justice will come in the end. Now, we might need to take a long view of that. I don't want to be over-simplistic and say God works all things together for good in a simple way. Um, we're in a broken world, and it doesn't work out that, that evenly or smoothly. Some, some of those things we see in the short term, some of them we wait for God's eternal plan for and Christ's return. But nevertheless, that's still a truth I'd want to hold on to. When nothing seems just, justice will come in the end. That's what we wait for Christ's return for. And when God seems absent, he is truly present. Do any of those things particularly resonate with you? Are any of those things, those things, things that you need to, as a kind of takeaway and store um, implication for your own circumstances? Or does the idea of God arranging things for you and for us in a moving day type circumstance, is that your takeaway thought? What I'd like us to do before um, Sam and the band come back to uh, lead us into a song leading us into communion is, if you're willing to, just chat to the people that you find yourself sitting with uh, what is your takeaway from that list or where did your journey go when you were thinking of the moving day type scenario let me pray and then I'll ask you to chat so Lord thank you that you take our prayerful careful best efforts and you work over and above and you go before us we're dependent on that happening now in ways we can't see, just as Esther couldn't see. Uh, six or seven different ways you arrange things. Thank you for Jessica's story. Thank you for the stories that we can picture where we have seen this, enough to go on, to trust you. Guide our conversations. Amen.